So this morning, uh, I want to begin by, it's, it's going to seem like a really big question uh, that you're going to want to give a simplistic answer to, but I'm going to ask you not to do that. But this morning, I want to begin by inviting you to deeply consider this question, and that is, why do you do what you do? You don't have to say it out loud, but at the end of the day, what do you think, and I really want you to consider this, what do you think is the main motivating factor for the decisions that you make? For example, and here are just a a couple for you to consider. Why do you make sure the doors are locked at night? Okay. Again, you don't have to say it out loud, but I just want you to think with me. Why do you look both ways before you cross the street? Why do you read food labels before consuming certain foods? Why do you take certain medications and nutritional supplements? Why do you avoid certain foods? Why do you eat certain foods? Why, why, do you, why do you wash your hands? At, at the end of the day, I'm just trying to get your mind, the pump going here. At the end of the day, I really want you to consider and think, what is truly beneath all the decisions you make throughout the course of the day? Uh, uh, one of the many ways that I'm not like Jesus uh, is that Jesus was a carpenter and I'm not so savvy at building things. Anyone who knows me knows this. However, I do have some good friends who are patient with me and who generously help me. For example, earlier this year, with the help, the extraordinary help of Wayne and young Alex, I rebuilt my deck. I mean, I was there for part of it, but we collectively, we rebuilt our deck. And you know what? In that process, I learned a bunch of things, a bunch of things I'd never learned before. But you know what's probably the most significant piece of information I learned throughout the entire process? I learned this. I learned that when it comes to new construction, a new deck with, with new wood, I learned that I need to wait several weeks, if not several months, before I could then stain and seal my deck. Did you know this? And you know, you know why you need to wait such a long time before you stain and seal new wood? You need to, do, you need to wait so that the stain and the sealer can actually be absorbed into the wood. In fact, they actually have a test to know if the wood is ready or not. If you put some water on the wood and it beads up or just sits there, then the wood is not ready. The stain won't absorb. And here's why that's really important. If the stain and sealer doesn't absorb into the wood, you know what happens? the wood will not be protected. 
You see, you want the pressure-treated wood to dry out so that when you apply the stain in the sealer, it will absorb into the wood so that it will then be protected from the weather and storms. Faith, this morning we're going to be studying Hebrews chapter 2, verses 14 through 16. And like with our passage last week, this text is not only exploding with good news, but is also extraordinarily rich with life-giving counsel. Please hear me, life-giving counsel that is going to challenge the way we live our lives. And here's what I'm going to ask of you this morning. I'm going to ask that you would please listen and consider what this passage has to say and not immediately dismiss it. My prayer is that like a properly prepared piece of wood, you would fully absorb what this text has to say. I don't know if I can say it like this, but I pray that the truth of this passage would metastasize, right? It would invade every aspect of our thinking, every aspect of our believing. But I need to tell you up front, this is going to require work. It's going to require humility if we are to have the truth of this passage work its way deep into our hearts and minds and not beat up on the surface of our souls like a new piece of wood. So if you haven't already, please turn, me with, the, turn with me in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 2. That's page 1001 in that paperback Bible. And as you're turning there, let me give you the context. Last week, we studied Hebrews chapter 10, I'm sorry, Hebrews chapter 2, verses 10 through 13. And you'll recall how in that text, the author invited us to do something really significant. Do you remember what that was? In Hebrews chapter 2, verses 10 through 13, the author invited us, please hear me, to consider the sufferings of Jesus and what God the Father was doing in Jesus through those sufferings for us. In chapter 2, verses 10 through 13, the author invites us to consider what God the Father was doing in Jesus through those sufferings for us. And do you remember what the answer was? We learned that Jesus, our pioneer, He suffered. Why? To bring us to glory. So that He would bring many sons and daughters to glory. Right? Jesus is not an angel. No, He's the eternal divine Son. 
And as verses 10 through 13 makes clear, the eternal divine son became a human being. He suffered and died in our place. He then rose from the dead victorious and entered into glory. And why? Why did Jesus suffer and die? He did so so that he might, as the verse says, might lead many sons and daughters to glory. Jesus, our pioneer, suffered to bring us to glory. And faith, what the New Testament screams, what it shouts, is that as our pioneer, in his suffering... Jesus left an example to follow for us so we would know what to do when suffering. This is made very clear in 1 Peter 2.21. Jesus left us an example to follow of what we're to do when suffering ourselves. And from the example of Jesus, as we really considered what the author is teaching about the sufferings of Jesus, we learned that when suffering, to follow our pioneer, we are to obey God as Jesus did. We're to worship God as Jesus did. And we're to trust God as Jesus did in our suffering. Well, now here in verses 14 through 16, the author, the preacher of Hebrews, he continues to give reasons as to why the eternal divine Son of God took on flesh to suffer and die for us. In faith, there is a truth in this text that if you believe it, it will radically alter how you live your life. This is to say this passage gets at the reason for why we do what we do. So follow along as I read Hebrews chapter 2. I'm going to read verses 14 through 18. However, we're just going to camp out on verses 14 through 16 this morning. But to get the whole context, I'm going to read those, those verses. Follow along with me and your copy of God's Word. So the author writes this, beginning in verse 14. He says, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, the children, this is referring to the the sons and daughters that God is bringing to glory through Jesus Christ. Since therefore the children, us humans, we share in flesh and blood, he himself, Jesus, likewise partook of the same things, namely humanity, flesh and blood. Why? That through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil. And then now listen to this. And deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. That's every person who's put their trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 17, Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God 
to make propitiation. Steve just talked about that, didn't he? To make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Amen and amen. This is God's good, good word. Uh, recently, my family we had <laughs> we had a really good laugh. The other day, we were cleaning out part of our basement when we found an old toy with these words written on it. <laughs> you see what it says? I love what? I love myself. Now, we're not sure who wrote those words. The jury's still out. It's still a mystery. But you know what? Don't be too hard on whoever that was. And here's why. Because although you may not have written I love myself on a toy... I wonder if you're communicating that same sentiment through your actions. How often do you make a decision based on some kind of fear? When you think about why you do what you do, how much of that is dictated by fear? Why do you make sure the doors are locked at night? Why do you look both ways before crossing the street? Why do you avoid certain social situations? Why do you avoid certain foods? Why do you take certain medications and nutritional supplements? At the end of the day, this, I, I want us to look at our hearts here. I want you to really consider what is truly beneath all the decisions you make. And I, and I invite you, faith, I invite you, friend, to be really honest with yourself. How much of your life is governed by faith? Fear. Here's another question. What do you think's underneath that fear? Why do you think we fear someone breaking into our home? Why do you think we fear getting hit by a car? Why do you think we fear being harmed? Or worse of all, experiencing the greatest harm that is death. What do you think is underneath all our fears? Faith, I would invite you to consider that is, what, that, is, that is what underneath all of our fears, especially the fear of death, is the love of self. What is underneath our fears is precisely what was written on this toy. I love myself. 
I mean, why are you so critical of your spouse's driving? Especially when he doesn't slow down quick enough. Why are you so self-protective? Is it not because you love yourself and don't want to experience any harm, especially death? Friend, I, I really want us to think about this as a church. How much of your life is dictated by fear? And you know why I ask this? I ask this because according to the passage I just read, Jesus died to deliver you from the fear of death. This I want to suggest is the main point of these several verses. Jesus died to deliver you from the fear of death, which is the ultimate fear. All our fears, which I want to suggest stem from a deep love and concern for self. All our fears flow from that fountain of the fear of death. Yet, Jesus died. He suffered and died to deliver us from such fear. The author makes this abundantly clear in verse 15. Have your eyes fall there. And deliver all those who through the fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. In our natural state, we are enslaved to this fear. And is it any wonder why? Because in our natural state, do we love God? Who do we love? Us. And notice how Jesus delivered us from this fear of death. He did it by taking on flesh and blood. Did you see it there in verse 14? This, I mean, this is what we celebrate every Christmas. Jesus, the eternal divine Son, took on human flesh. Jesus Christ is God incarnate, fully God, fully man. As we've been learning in the discipleship hour, right? One person in two natures. And why did Jesus take on human flesh? Why did he partake of the same things? So that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, the devil. Now, what does that mean? Right? What does it mean that the devil has the power of death? Well, to be sure, the devil only has the power of death in a secondary, not ultimate sense, right? Satan is not all-powerful. Who is? God. Indeed. As the rest of Scripture teaches, the devil did not possess control over death inherently, but gained his power when he seduced mankind to rebel against God. Yet now, through Christ's death, Jesus has overcome the curse of death, thus dethroning the power of Satan. And as the following verse makes clear, Jesus died so we would be delivered, set free, never to turn and go back. He died so we'd be set free from the fear of death. And here's the question I really want us to consider this morning, and that is, friend, are you still living in bondage to that fear? Why do you do what you do? 
Are you and your well-being at the core of your decisions? So how should we live in light of this, this truth? What I think is, it's, I mean, it's black ink and white paper, right? Like, how do we live in light of this truth? Well, I want to invite you to consider three applications from this truth. And the first is this. Since Jesus died to deliver you from the fear of death, I'd invite you to, number one, renounce your fears. If Jesus delivered you from such fear, don't go back. Look again at verses 14 and 15. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, those are the many sons and daughters he's bringing to glory, he himself, Jesus, likewise partook of the same things, humanity, that through death, his death on the cross, he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil. Praise him. And deliver all those who through fear of death, this fear of death made a subject to lifelong slavery. So first renounce your fears. In his helpful article, it's a really great article entitled, Self-preserving fear, genius or judgment of God. Dr. Jim Fain argues that all fear terminating upon self-preservation is sinful. And commenting on this passage, Fain writes this. He says, the fear of death, it appears, the self-preserving fear of death is more an enemy, a tool of Satan than a genius of God. And then he asks this helpful question, referring to the experience of fearing death. Fain asks, how dishonoring would it be to have an experience, that is, fearing death, that Jesus died to destroy. And I believe the answer is very dishonoring. Why? Because as Scripture makes clear, friend, please hear me, that which you fear, you are commanded not to fear. Faith, please hear me. We are repeatedly commanded in Scripture to turn from fear. Remember when we studied First and Second Samuel? Tell me, uh, who sought to kill King David? Saul. So, good job. Thumbs up. You guys pass. Okay. So let's, let's drill down here for a moment and try to flesh this out. Let's pretend for a moment that like David, you're like David and someone's out to kill you. Or, or better like, yeah, let's do this. Let's say you're in a house that is on fire. I believe the Bible is not silent, but it's very clear that that which you fear when the house is on fire, you are commanded not to fear, which is the loss of your life. I mean, what does Jesus say in Matthew 6:25? He commands us what? Do not be anxious about your life. Or what does Jesus say at the end of the Bible? In Revelation 2.10, when speaking to Christians 
Listen, speaking to Christians who are starving to death and are about to be executed, what does he say to them in Revelation 2.10? He says, do not fear what you are about to suffer. Jesus commands them not to fear a terrible, awful death. That's Jesus' good word, his loving counsel to these starved Christians. Indeed, what does Jesus say in Luke 12, verses 4 through 5? I tell you, my friends, do not fear those who kill the body and after that have nothing more they can do. Right? So like for David, that had been King Saul. Do not fear Saul, David. Today that might be cancer or a car accident or a tornado or the next pandemic. Do not fear those things that can kill the body. Jesus commands. He goes on to say, but I will warn you whom to fear. Fear him who after he has killed has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. What is Jesus commanding against in these verses? He's commanding us not to fear those who could kill us. Indeed, and as I'm trying to suggest from our text in Hebrews, Hebrews, what is it? I mean, this is an absolute game changer. As verse 15 makes clear, Christian, Jesus came, and aren't we thankful? He came to deliver you from a lifelong fear of this, of death. And here's why I began this morning by asking you, and I pray that you'll still be with me, you just won't dismiss this off to the side and say, no, 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 this doesn't apply. This is, this is, no. And it's really, let's just sit here for a moment. Let's really think about why we do what we do and see if, in fact, there is any lingering fear in the decisions that we make. This self-preserving, self-protecting fear. Because I wonder if we've returned to that fear during these last several years. I wonder if we have made the fear of an illness taking away our life or something we value our highest motivation for the decisions we make. Where do we go? What do we do? Who do we hang out with? Now, please hear me. In light of Christ's commands, do these verses imply that we ought to live reckless lives? No. Do they mean that we ought to just throw caution out the wind? Again, no. And am I saying that everyone who exercises caution is doing so out of a fear of dying? No, but it could be.
And as a preacher, I am bound to what the Scripture says. And what these texts make abundantly clear is that we ought not to make the fear of dying our motivation for living, for making decisions. Jesus not only explicitly commands us not to fear death, but the author of Hebrews makes it crystal clear that Christ came to deliver us from this fear. Listen, to return to such fear is to return to slavery. It's to go back to Egypt. And why are we not to fear death? We're not to fear death because our Savior has defeated death and promised resurrection for all who are united Him by faith. Amen? You see, the reality is, please hear me, we all have something to be scared of. We all have something to be scared of, something far worse than I've mentioned thus far. Friend, we all have something to be far more afraid of. And you know what that is? It's the just and wrathful condemnation we are owed from God for our sin. That's what we ought to fear. Because of our sin, we all stand condemned before a holy God. And that should make us shiver in our boots. But it doesn't. Most often it doesn't. And because we don't see how terrible that is, when we hear passages like this that say we shouldn't fear self-protecting, well, that's nonsense. Friend, there is a coming judgment And all who are found dead in their sins will suffer for all eternity in hell. Jesus Jesus says, fear Him who has the authority to cast into hell. Yet for the Christian, we have no need to fear. Why? Because notice what the author of Hebrews says there in verse 17. What does it say? Why should we not have this great fear of this coming judgment? Verse 17, because Jesus died to make propitiation for the sins of the people. Steve alluded to it a moment ago. You know what propitiation means? That word, friend, please hear me. It simply means Christ takes away God's anger at us for our sins. When Christ died, he was perfectly innocent. His death was to bear the guilt and punishment of our sins, not his own. He didn't have any. And when our punishment fell on him, it was taken away from us. Praise the Lord. That's what propitiation means. You see, friend, the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ is that on the cross, Jesus received the full wrath of God for those who put their trust in him. Christ received the fearful condemnation for his people. So for those who are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, we are not to fear death because our Savior conquered the grave. Amen? So, if we are commanded not to fear death, if we're commanded to renounce fear, then why should we not ride our bikes down the middle of the road? Why should I wear a helmet when I play hockey? 
Why should you look both ways when crossing the street? Why, why should I go into the basement when the tornado alarm goes off? Why, sh- why should we live prudent lives if not out of the motivation to protect ourselves? The next verse answers that question. Look at verse 16. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. And if you're the underlying type, we're going to talk a little bit about those words, that verb, helps. But first let me tell you a story. <laughs> I, I have a friend who used to fly airplanes for the military. And he recently shared with me that the military, get a load of this, the military could prosecute him if he got sunburned on his shoulders so that he could not fly with his parachute on. Think about that. If his shoulders got too sunburned, the military could prosecute him. And you know why? Because he was owned by the military. He was not free to do whatever he wanted. No, because he was owned by the military, they could tell him what he could and could not do. In fact, he was, he was forbidden to go on vacation to Mexico, even though all his other military personnel could do, because the risk of him getting sunburned was too great. He was owned by the military, and as such, he was obligated to fulfill his tasks, even at a great cost to him. Notice the author of Hebrews says in verse 16, for surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. And as several commentators have pointed out, the author uses a really curious word that we translate for help. And it's very curious because normally this word in the Greek New Testament is not translated as help. No, what the word actually means is to take hold of. To grasp. The idea being that God has taken hold of those who are Abraham's offspring. And you know who that is, Abraham's offspring? That's you. That's me. (laughs) Yes. That's all who put their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. This is to say, God has taken hold of, He owns all who trust in Christ. Christian, why ought you look both ways when crossing the street? Why ought you wear a hockey helmet? Because you were owned by God. And this is the second application I challenge you to embrace. Remember, Christian, God owns you. I mean, what does Paul write in 1 Corinthians 6, 19-20? We all know this by now, right? I'll put it up here on the screen. What do you say? Let's say this together. Ready? Or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. You were bought with a price. You are not your own. 
So let's go back to the house fire scenario. Why should you flee a building on fire? Most Christians, without even thinking, would say, because I don't want to die. I don't want to get burnt. And they don't realize it, but their motivation is self-protection. I'm inviting you to consider that the Bible wants to give you a better motivation. And that is this. First thing, if you're in a building fire, in a house that's on fire, first thing, you should see if anyone else is in there that needs to be saved, right? That's the first thing. But why should you flee? What should your motivation be? Amen. It should be because God owns your life and you need to serve Him today and the next day and every day after that. My motivation, because Christ owns me, He's delivered me. He saved me. He's rescued me from this lifelong fear of death. My motivation isn't self-preservation. No, it's to live for Him who died for me. That's why I need to exercise wisdom and prudence so I can listen to me. I can serve my God the next day and every day after that. Friend, do you, this is why I'm saying... Do you see how invasive God's word wants to be in our lives? But so often we treat it and just have it bead on our souls. But I'm challenging us as a church to let it absorb that we actually think through what is my motivation for looking both ways before I get out on 42? Why do I hold my kids' hands when I'm going into Kroger? Is it self-focused? If so, I invite you to change your focus and have it be God-focused. Because remember, God owns you. Our motivation is to live for Him. This is why we're not to live reckless lives. And here's the question I want us to consider. Faith, have you allowed this reality to absorb in your heart? Or is it just beating on the surface of your soul? I mean, think with me for a moment. What if you sincerely embraced this truth? What if you sincerely embraced the truth that self-protection is not to be the reason for why you do what you do, but instead that you belong to God and you're called to live for Him? What if that was on your mind when you're driving, when you're going to work, Now, this radical reorientation of our desires and motives is challenging, isn't it? I want to suggest that you would consider that God wants us to eradicate self-protection and love for self as the reason for why we do what we do and instead replace it with a desire to live for Jesus and honor Him. Because look, we are but dust aren't we? But I'll tell you, I deceive myself into thinking I am way more important than I am. I'm way more important than I am. I can't miss myself. But we are but dust, frail dust. But what is God that he's mindful of us and he saves us and he redeems us? So, so how can we 
How can we replace our natural inclination to live for ourselves in this way to honor Him? Because it's a tall order, is it not? So how can we do this? Well, let's keep reading. (laughs) Because it's great news. Listen, God has taken hold of us so that He might help us in our time of need. And here's the third application I'd invite you to consider, and that is to rely on God's help. Look at verse 16 once more, and then verse 18. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. And unless we have any idea that he's redeemed us, he's, he's taken a hold of us to help us, verse 18, for because he himself has suffered when tempted, he's able to help those who are being tempted. And is in the context, a temptation we might have is to fear death. Right? Christian, is it not good news that God has taken hold of you so as to help you? Is it not good news? Amen? And what's the primary way God helps us? I would suggest one of the primary ways is through His Word. Christian, find comfort in this. God is aware of the struggle and concerns of your life. And more than that, He cares for you. He does. And what we have to understand is that in His care, one of God's chief concerns is that we would be made like Jesus. God's goal is for, for you is to make you more like His Son. And I, I want to just I want to have you consider this passage in Psalms. Psalm thirty four ten says this. He says, "The young lions suffer want and hunger, but those who seek the Lord lack what? No good thing." What if I believed this verse? What if you believed this verse? Because if I believed this verse, I would trust that whatever it is I don't have, it's because God has determined it's not good for me. Why? Because God says those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. Think for a moment about how this this passage speaks to our fears. If I don't get what I want, I should not fear but rest knowing that I didn't get it because God determined it was not for my good. Or if God took something away from me, I should not see it as my worst fears coming to pass, but as God's gracious hand working for my good. Faith, I don't know what this next week might hold for you or for me. I do hope, and I do hope it holds for you, that you would be willing to fast for one meal this week and to pray for our church. I hope that's on your agenda. But what I do know is that God has promised to never leave us nor forsake us. And whatever circumstances might come our way, we are not to fear 
but to continually entrust ourselves to him who judges justly. May the truth of this passage not beat up like water on pressurized wood, but instead absorb deeply into our hearts. Amen? Let's pray.